You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. It is done in their lives and, and realize that although God has started something, it is not over yet. And, and you know as well as I do, just as you listen to that song, that there'll be a whole bunch of voices that'll be heard. And the, the one voice that needs to be heard the loudest in all of that, and sometimes it comes as a very small, quiet voice, is the voice of God. And so, so students, don't give up on listening close enough to know which voice you're listening to. The, the Word of God says that the, the sheep know the shepherd's voice, and the shepherd knows the sheep. And so listen closely. Um, we're going to be looking and continuing in this, um, in this series called um, Living Grace out of the book of Titus. And so if you would, turn to Titus 3. Um, we're going to be looking at a couple of things. And Titus 3 is, uh, is a little bit of a, a switch. And we're getting into some very practical areas of living in here. And, and some of it is, are things that we need to understand. Um, the beginning part of the book of Titus is, is, starts out very general. Then it gets very specific. And Paul writes this to Titus as a pastor on an island and says, share this with the churches on that island, the island of Crete. And he's sharing with them what it means to be a leader and what leadership looks like. But then it starts to talk about even what congregational relationships should look look like, like older women to mentoring younger women, older men mentoring younger men. And it goes on. And in chapter three, we're going to get into some things on how to relate not just to, to each other in the body of Christ, but how to relate outside the body of Christ. Um, we, we traveled yesterday with the, the joy group. And, and, the, and just so you know, the joy group really doesn't have an age limit on it from what I can tell. Um, on the upper end or lower, lower end. So, so if, if you're 117, still breathing, show up. We'll help you on the van, all that stuff. Um, we, were, we were in and out of the van several times yesterday. Some people had to, came out forward. Some people had the reverse lights on coming out. And um, yeah, it always makes for an interesting time. So, uh, but we, we had a good time. We, Deb and I started out, because we went with the group yesterday, started out in the back of the van. Now, I've not been in the back of a van in a long time. Um, the back of the van is not really known for its great reputation. And so I told everybody in the front of the van not to pay attention to what was happening in the back of the van. Um, it was daylight, so it was probably somewhat safe. They didn't have to turn on the light and do, you know, a hand check. Remember those days? And so um, but didn't, didn't have really that going on. But what we did realize is the back of the van, is very, it's, a, it's a bumpy place. And, and so we were back there for a while. And then Charlie and Barbara went back as, um, as I don't know, missionaries to the back row. Um, they, they went to the back of the van. We moved up a little closer. But while we were back there, we noticed something. Um, Deb checked her phone. And uh, she checked her phone, and she was checking how many steps she had taken. And we realized as we're going down the road that it's registering steps. <laughs> her feet weren't moving. 
It's like, man, this is awesome exercise. We, you know, how many steps does it take to get to Fort Mill, South Carolina? I don't know, about a thousand. You know, so we're checking, checking steps. And, and it was kind of a reality check. And we started looking at that and going, okay, so what does that equal? And, and some of you remember this, and we talked about it yesterday, those machines you stood on and had the, the strap that went around and just jiggled you. And it was supposed to be for losing weight. You remember those? Some of you are going, no, and it's okay, because that means you're not old enough to remember those. But some of you are going, oh, I remember them. I don't know what they did. They just, you know, jiggled fat around your body somewhere and put it somewhere else or something. But, but it was a reality check. And Paul writes to Titus, and it's kind of a reality check. How are we supposed to live in this in time? And for the, the churches on the island of Crete, they're trying to figure out how to live this, this Christianity out. And you know, we're, we're several years, we're, we're 37 years removed from the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And there's always been this pull in the, in the church from very early days about what doctrine looked like. Um, what, was, what was I supposed to do as a Christian? And if the, if the town around me was doing this, how did that affect what I did as a follower of Christ? And how much different should my life look? And then how am I supposed to relate to, to governments and the rest of it? And so when Paul writes this, he's telling Titus, he says, I understand the organizational part, and you need to understand the organizational part, but understand that the body of Christ is an organism. It's a living, growing thing. And we have the responsibility to be in a place where we are growing as an organism. And so Paul writes this. And so would you stand as we read out of Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. You know, Paul has already written talking about living righteously, denying ungodliness. And then in verse 1 of chapter 3, he writes this. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. To malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared or showed itself, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 6, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage and think about what our lives look like, what our responsibilities are, how we're to relate, Father, I pray that you would help us to grasp what Paul was trying to tell Titus to share with that group of churches. And Father, it would make a difference in us when we walk out of this place, even a difference in us as we relate to those within this place. Father, that you would be glorified, you would be lifted up. Father, not for the sake of our credit, but for the sake of your glory and fame. 
And so, Father, work during this time to teach us and grow us and stretch us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So Paul writes this letter to Titus. He's passionate about it. He's um, actually toward the end of his ministry. So, so he's got some things that he wants to share with, with Titus and with these churches. And the first thing I want us to catch in this as we look at verse 1, verse one and 2 is the, the, about the lost art of respect. The lost art of respect. Um, it, it's interesting because he starts out, he says, remind them. And so this is something that, that they had already heard, but Paul's responsibility or Paul's responsibility to Titus and Titus's responsibility to the churches was to remind them, to, to kind of take them back and say, hey, this is how you're supposed to relate. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Well, the Cretans were under Roman rule. And you know, uh, this whole idea of how the Romans ruled and, and how they dealt with people. And, they, and the Cretans had been under Roman rule for about 130 years. So it wasn't something new to them. It was something that had been in place. But Paul's reminding them that they need to be subject or come under the authority of the Romans and that government. Well, it's hard to be under Roman rule if you don't agree with Roman rule. It's hard to be under Roman rule if that rule seems to be oppressive. And we saw that a lot when we read through the Gospels as the, the Pharisees and then Rome and, and this whole idea of a Messiah coming to, to break them out of Roman rule. I mean, that was the idea of the Messiah, wasn't it? That he was going to come as a, as a mighty warrior to, to break Israel free from Roman oppression. And so we, we understand that, that Rome's oppression probably spread across the whole empire. And yet Paul writes this to, to be subject to those that are in authority. And he doesn't address everything. And so if we have a, a, um, an issue with a particular part of Roman rule, what do we do with that? And Paul's response is to be subject to it, respect it. It's the same word here when he says to be subject to rulers. It's the same word used when he's talking about husbands and wives. We've had that discussion, and we'll talk about that again in the coming weeks. But the, the idea of just an order that we're supposed to follow. And so he says, be subject to or range under. It's to, and essentially, it's a recognition of God's sovereignty. Because we can disagree with the, the government or disagree with the authorities and say, I don't like the way that's done. I don't like that way that's being handled. Uh, we, we live in an era where you can turn on a news station and get, I don't know how many different sides to the same issue and come out of it with 14 different opinions. And in here, probably, I don't know, 150 different opinions. It's tough when you start looking at all the things that are there and, and the way we're supposed to respond. So how are you supposed to respond when, when the government seems to be against what you believe? What do you do with that? You still have to respect it. It doesn't mean that you have to like it. There is a responsibility for Christians to take a look and say, what is God's responsibility in all of this? You see, God is God is sovereign. 
And when we take God out of the equation, we think that we have the ability to change what is ruled around us. Granted, we get to vote. I get that. We have a responsibility to be part of that. And even, even being part of the political process is a responsibility for those that call themselves by the name of Christ. Understand, there is a group of folks that would just assume Christ be out of everything. And so we don't want to give up that which God has called us to. But we have to understand that God has put folks in authority, in place. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For, now listen to this, because I don't even like this. So yeah, I'm not going to tear it out, but I don't have to... Have absolutely have to like this thing it says for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God therefore whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God and those who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves do you like that I like it when I those I like are in office but I don't necessarily like it if somebody that I don't like is in office or I disagree with their policies, or I disagree with the way they do things. God has used both good and evil regimes throughout history to bring about His glory and to express His story in redeeming mankind to Himself. You just think about some some examples, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians. Jesus even talk to the Pharisees about, about this in Matthew twenty two fifteen through 22. And, and he made this statement. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God what is God or what belongs to God. So what does Jesus mean by that? Does he mean, oh, you have to like it? No, it means that if taxes are part of the scenario of what a government sets up and you live under that government, pay taxes. You can't avoid it. Just do it. It is the authority that is set over you. See, this phrase by Jesus where he says, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, render what is God's, what belongs to God, was not a matter of checking how you respond to the authority of the government. It was how you respond to the authority of God. It was a heart check for the Pharisees. They didn't want to hear that. Because what, what Jesus was telling them, he's saying, hey, you want to put me in this position where I, you're trying to make me be a, an ally of Rome. But I'm telling you, that means very little. What really makes a difference is, are you an ally of God? Are you doing what God has called you to do? Or are you doing what you want to do? And so maybe the question for us in this, when we talk about responding to the authority of government and how to deal with that, maybe the question is this, are we more concerned with the affairs of government and their decisions than we are with our heart and our relationship to Almighty God? What concerns us more? Where do you have your radio station more? Where do you have your TV set more often? What concerns you more? And the call out of Scripture is that even though there is a government over us, that our concern would be our relationship with God and how we relate to Him, understanding that He is sovereign. 
Now, I want you to catch this. Not only is God sovereign, and I, I want to try and be clear, and hopefully it'll come out that way. The second thing is there is a time and a place for civil disobedience. You're going, whoa, wait a minute. You said, what? Yeah, there's a, there's a time and a place for civil disobedience, but it's always done within the, the concept of respect. Um, I was listening to an argument. I, I, Deb, you may have to tell me where we heard it. Oh, I know, I know where we heard it. Never mind. Got it. It came to mind. We were watching TV the other night, and we were watching, um, we were watching Blue Bloods. Now, there, there's certain shows that we watch, and we, we watch that, and, and sometimes it's like, I don't know. Um, but at the, at, toward the end of the show, and it, it could have been one of those marathon things where you know, Blue Bloods is on like all day, so I couldn't tell you what episode it was. Um, but it was one of those things where the dad, he just kind of expressed about disobeying authority and government. And he said this, he says, when you essentially the, the idea is, the summary of it is, if you do something that, that is against the law to accomplish what you want to try and accomplish, then the argument from either side of that equation is not heard. For instance, if... If the way you intend to change the way things are done is by disobeying the law, then your argument will not be heard. Neither will the other side of the argument. And I was like, that's, that's pretty wise. And so we, if we want things to change around us with regards to government, we handle it with respect, knowing that God has placed people in the authority that he has. And so we have, to, we have to be always respectful. It says, be subject to rulers, to authorities, be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Political movements today are rarely marked by the attitudes and actions that are expressed by following Scripture. Well, tell me something new. Yeah, it's, we are to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. You realize that you know, what the students were singing about our relationship to God is that God has created us and, and, and we've received Him by faith. He's created us as a workmanship to do good works, as a, a tapestry put together to honor and glorify Him. 2 Timothy 2.21 describes our usefulness in terms of a vessel. A vessel that's used by God to, to change and to affect change. To influence a culture. And so we have that responsibility. Romans 13.12 says to lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so when Paul writes this, he says to malign no one. To to Step away from that to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. If you handle the authority and the responsibility of being a change agent, even with regard to government, if you handle it in that way, God is honored. And so our job is to follow God with understanding the reality of the situation. You know, Paul was one of those interesting characters that had he had audience with governments. And we can kind of track 
um, what happens to him. He was before leaders, shared the truth of the gospel, always did it with respect, but not pulling any punches. And so, so Paul would share. And in Acts 18, 9, it says, Do not be afraid any longer, this is God talking to him, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And Paul understood the gravity of his call to follow God above everything. And so where they said, don't speak about Jesus, he says, oh, but I, I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to do what God tells me to do, even though you're telling me not to do it. And so there's a point at which civil disobedience is marked and only marked by that which God commands us to do. And so we have to be very careful about what the command of God and what the command of government would be. And so maybe it ought to be said of us, and this is what ought to characterize our life, is about how Paul and those around Paul were described in Acts 17.6. These men who have upset the world have come here also. So, so us, we should be described by that phrase. We should be those that upset the world. Well, what's the qualification for that? Following God. We upset the world because we are tracking after the heartbeat of God. Graduates, let's see, you guys are on two different sides today. I'll make this difficult. I got to be able to see both, but it's real. I'm not, I don't want to play tennis, you know, or be on the sideline playing tennis. So, so here's the deal. You guys are a generation of influencers. You're a generation of influencers. Don't forget that. The world actually is looking to you upon graduation to do something that changes the world. And, and really, that's been, uh, that's been the call to graduates all the time. It's just a matter of what is your change going to look like? How is it going to change things around you? And so the tension you now face and will face comes from three different places. Uh, the first one is a pull toward personal passion. Personal passion. What do you want? So that's going to be the, the first thing, is what is your passion in life? What has God called you to do? The second one is cultural persuasion. See, culture will tell you what you ought to think and what you ought to do. And it will say that following God is a foolish ambition. And so cultural persuasion. The third piece of this is godly pursuit. And so as you understand those tensions, you have to understand which one that you will submit to. And I would say personal passion is important. It, it kind of drives you. Cultural persuasion is something that may not be godly and, and this in our culture today likely will not be. However, Godly pursuit is always in fashion. Godly pursuit will guard you and guard your heart and guard the way you deal with life. And so lean into God and be reminded to respect the authority of God and the sovereignty of God in whatever you do. Second thing I want us to look at is the hard work of restoration in this passage. The hard work of restoration. Now, I brought this window, um, it's got a little dust, um, it's an old, as you can t 
tell, it's an older window. Um, I, I did not get permission to bring this this morning, but I brought it anyways. Um, but we got all the way here before it was discovered that it was actually in the back seat. So observation is just part of the key. Um, so I brought this window, and, it, and it's an old window. It's been redone a little bit. It's got a few coats of paint. And really, if you were to scrape off the latest coats of paint, you'd find some other coats of paint. It, it is a, it's a window that's going to be used. And the idea is we're going to put um, pictures behind these panes of window that will kind of describe some of the journey, just our journey as a family. So it'll eventually end up in one of the rooms of the house. So it's, it's been redone, kind of, kind of repurposed. It was a $10 window found in somebody's garage. It's been repurposed, but it is not restored. Repurposed, maybe fixed up a little bit, repainted, but not restored. What does restoration look like? What, what is the difference between this window and restoration? Well, restoration would mean that we completely take it apart and make it useful again for the purpose it was made for. When, it's, when it hangs on my wall, it is not to keep the weather out or the cool air in. It's going to be for another purpose. But when God does restoration, it's different than this. It's different than just a coating of paint that looks good on the outside. In fact, the Pharisees tried that whole idea of looking good on the outside, not really caring about the rest, the restorative part of that on the inside. And Jesus ended up calling them whitewashed tombs, didn't he? And so it's not about putting a couple of coats of paint and doing some fancy sanding on it. It's about restoring to a different condition. And so when we talk about the hard work of restoration, listen to what it says. For we... Also, once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That is an awful description. And yet Paul doesn't say, hey, um, there were just a couple of you that had these characteristics. The rest of you really look kind of good. Now, he just kind of lumps everybody in the same camp and says, for we also, and he includes himself, for we also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to, to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, and hating. In need of restoration. Restoration means to be, to be changed, to be put in, back into a pristine state. I want to show you some restorations. I don't own either one of these. So the first one is a picture of a Camaro. It said Camaro in the clip art, but I'm, I think it's wrong too, but I only report what the news is. This is where internet fails you. I thought that was strange, but I'm thinking, hey, who am I to argue? I was a kid when this car was made. I didn't know anything. All right, so it's a... Challenger. We'll have to renovate the word. All right, let's move on. Maybe I'll get the second one right. And the second one is. Oh, thank, thanks. Thanks, Vaughn. Way to fix that. 
He's quick with a mouse. All right. Second one, is, is that one close? That's a Chevelle. Okay. All right. I thought if I missed two out of two, it's not bad. 500, you can still get a pretty good contract with, the, with Major League Baseball. So, yeah, so a restored Chevelle. And um, obviously, there was a little bit of work done to get it to where it's at. But some of you have been around cars that have been restored. And some of you own cars that have been restored. And it's hard work. And it means sometimes getting into places that are very difficult. And um, it, it means labor and it means pain. That's part of it. And when we start looking at the hard work of restoration in this, it's this portrait of what is the reality and what from that reality, how do we move forward? Well, he tells us what the reality is. We were foolish ourselves, disobedient, and so on. He tells us what that is, and we have to recognize that reality. It's like recognizing that riding in the back of the van with a, with a pedometer or, or your phone and it measures your steps is not reality. We have to look at the reality. What are we? And when we recognize that the reality of our sinful nature, we understand how big the grace of God is toward us. And until we recognize that, we don't really realize how bad off we are. And that we need God's forgiveness, mercy, and grace to move from being an unchosen people to a chosen people. It is a transformation. It's a restoration. Had conversation with somebody this week. Shared the, the gospel. Talked about restoration. Talked about things being made new and different. Got to the end of the conversation said, would you like this? Would you like to pursue this? And the answer was no. That's a hard word to hear back. It's like going back to that Chevelle and saying, can you throw that back up, Vaughn? It's like going to this and saying, I own the top one, and somebody's willing to give me the bottom one, but no thanks, I'll stay with the top one. We would say, no choice at all. Doesn't even make sense. But people do. They choose to stay in foolishness, disobedience, deception, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending their life in malice, envy, hateful, and hating others. People choose that. Two keys that are expressed in this passage about God's love for us. and says in verse 4, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared. It wasn't a flash. We've talked about this before. It was to just be made known. This is what took place. He saved us. Wow. He saved us. Is that, is that good? He saved us. You were in, the, in a, an awful state apart from Christ. But he saved us. It, when you even look at that phrase and stop at that phrase to understand that he saved us means that, that we had to be saved from something. And really it's 
being saved from all those things that, talk, that are activities, but not so much even that. He saved us from the penalty of our own sin and separation from God. He saved us. And then it says this, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. And it's interesting that Paul uses this phrase because he could have stopped the, the sentence or made the transition. He could have just said, not on the basis of deeds which, which we have done. And he could have stopped there and he would have been fine to stop there, right? That would have been a fine in this sentence if he had stopped there and left off in righteousness, but he added it. And why would he possibly add that? It's because unsaved people do good things, Right? You know people that don't have a relationship with Christ and still do things that are good. There are lots of movements around for clean water and feeding children and all those kind of things. And not everybody that does those has a relationship with Jesus Christ. The difference what Paul is telling Titus to remind them of, the difference here is that those deeds, regardless of whether they're bad or if they're extremely good, do not save you. We don't get saved on the basis of what we do, what we accomplish. We get saved out of the kindness of God and what He has done. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. But according to His mercy... That God bestowed on us something that we didn't deserve. He released us from that penalty. And then it says the regeneration. What, is, what in the world does regeneration mean? Regeneration in, in the Greek just means to take a bath. It's this whole idea of cleansing that takes place. And so what he says is that we've been regenerated, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. He's made us new. He's made us different. And it's not so much a just put a coat of paint over us so that we look better on the outside. It's a newness that starts from the inside when we accept Christ as our Savior. It's something completely brand new. Restored to pristine condition without the tainting of sin or the effects of sin. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we are made a new creature or a new creation in Christ. So regeneration is part of it. Our standing before God is one of righteousness, not based on what we've done, but based on what Jesus did. Second part of this is the renewing by the Holy Spirit. And so we get, we get regenerated. We begin this relationship with Jesus Christ, but then there is a work that takes place in us that changes us, doesn't it? When we say, God, I'm submitted to you, it changes us. It makes us different. See, we need renewal. The, the word there means to, to have strength or a vigor that we did not have before. And so when he talks about regeneration, it's a start of a relationship and then the strength to live in that relationship by the Holy Spirit. And so what do we get with the Holy Spirit? We get comfort, strength of comfort. Yesterday when we went to Narrowway, it was the story of Geronimo. 
And if you have never heard or read the story, I would encourage you to look it up. It's very interesting. Just how God worked in the life of this man who was um, bitter for a while. And how God restored him and renewed him. God also gives us strength for understanding by his spirit. He's a teacher. He gives us an understanding that there is a need for repentance by being a convictor. And then the Holy Spirit also gives us the strength to live in confidence because of the seal of the promise that is made by God. Ephesians 1.13 says that we are sealed with the Spirit is a promise that says that we get the hope that God has given us through Christ. And so graduates on this one, be reminded of God's work in you this far, thus far. Don't forget what He's already done. And then walk in confidence as a restored vessel for His glory. The third thing and the last thing is the glory of a measured race. The glory of a measured race in verse 7. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That, that word heir just means somebody that is in the family, maybe not in the family, but part of the family, connected to the family, and going to receive something. And so when my dad passed away, my brother and I were heirs to his estate. We got the house. We got all the papers. We got everything that was marked by him. And we had to do something with it. We were heirs. We received that as part of our inheritance. So what is the inheritance that we get in Christ? Being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs. So by the grace of God, by accepting Christ, we are brought into the family and then made heirs and heirs of the hope of eternal life or according to the hope of eternal life. We get what we didn't deserve, but we get it. Now, you remember the story of the prodigal son, right? Which you could also entitle the awaiting father. It was a story of a, of a, a father and, and two sons, and the younger son wanted his inheritance, and he wanted it immediately. And so he got it, he went, he squandered it, he did all kinds of things. And you remember what the father said as the stinky younger son came back, the older son got his feelings hurt and got upset. He got a little out of whack with, with God and the whole situation. Remember what the father said to him? All that is mine is yours. Always has been. It's interesting that when we talk about inheritance, we're talking about what God has made in his glory. That's why we look forward to the hope of eternal life. We get to be heirs in, heirs in that and so the question is, what is ahead for you? Well, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Do you not know that those who run a race, run in a race, all run, but only one receives the prize? I saw a picture, Sam, of you up there, and um, I don't know if you won or not. <laughs> he did say no. But you were working on it. I mean, it did, just the look on your face said, this may not feel real good right now, but you were running. And you were running to win a prize. You were running to finish the race. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. 
They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it, a, make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I, my, I myself will not be disqualified. So the question is, why do you run? Why do you try and, and honor God in the way you live? It's to bring glory to God. It's not for self-gratification. It's to bring Him glory. In Acts 20, 24, in Paul's message to the Ephesian elders, he says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul's in this. He's in the mix. And he's sharing with Titus. He's saying, Titus, this, this hope of eternal life, it's ours. We need to be reminded to run well. 2 Timothy 4, 6 and through 8 is Paul at the end of his life. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course and I have kept the faith. Oh, it would be great if all of us, when we finish at the end of our life, had just a moment enough to say that phrase to those around us. Wouldn't that be good? And many of us will, will get to the end of our life and we'll start to look back and say, what happened to it? Mike and I were having a conversation earlier about the, the, how quickly life goes by. And we talk about kids and different things in ministry and, and places and realize that the time is really short. And you don't get a chance to do it over again. And so you look back, but you look back quickly. You assess where you've been and realize how God has taken you. And as with graduates right now, just about everything that is being told to you is to look ahead and look at the broad spectrum, uh, the broad scope of the canvas before you. But don't forget what God has done. The measured race is one that considers the mar marvelous work of God's grace within you and lives to bring glory to God in the finish. It's essentially starting with the end in mind. So graduates, your faith journey, your race is marked by the way you handle everyday faith. Run the race with measured abandon toward God. We could say that for everybody in the room, couldn't we? It really doesn't matter whether you have half an hour to live, which is a real potential, or 75 years more, or 117 years more. It really doesn't matter. Our response to God is to run a race that is measured by our allegiance to the Father and follow Him with as much energy and passion as we possibly can for His glory because He is the one that is worthy of all glory and honor. Let's pray. Father, we come into this passage and there's so much in it about our responsibility to live life in a way that brings glory to you. Father, from dealing with government to recognizing 
about where we were prior to knowing Christ to where we are today. To looking forward to the hope of eternal life that is only made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, as we seek to make Him and and allow Him to be Lord in our life, Father, I pray that You would continue to renew us. Father, for some of us in this room that may have never asked Jesus into our life to not ask for His forgiveness, but to just not be in that right standing with God because we've never done that. Father, for us to understand that sin separates us from God, but your free gift of the free gift of you brings us eternal life. And so, Father, I pray for that one that may not know you this morning, that they would even express to someone around them or even come up front this morning and say, I need a relationship with Jesus. Father, I pray you'll just use our time of invitation, our time of commitment to bring about what you want to bring about in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are two expressions this morning that we could talk about in this invitation. The first one is the idea of being made new, to be regenerated, to to come to Christ and give your life to Him and surrender your life to Him and allow Him to be boss. The second one is to be renewed by the Holy Spirit to be refreshed by Him and allow Him to do the work in you that He wants to do so that we can live out for Christ in a way that brings God fame and glory. So would you stand? This time of invitation is open. Sam will lead us. And in a few moments, we'll close. And we've got a different way of closing today. But if God's um, wanting to do something during this time of invitation, the altar is open for you.
God has called us to live as His children. Whether it's governing authorities, we do it all under the, the idea that God has saved us from something we couldn't save ourselves from. And we live to glorify Him with a view toward eternity. And so as we continue with just an, the attitude of prayer, I'm going to ask that our graduates come back down. I know that's going to be difficult for you. Um, but I'm going to ask that our graduates come down and, um, and their parents and family. If you guys would come to the, to the front. The slower you are, the longer the service is. <laughs> just saying. There we go. We're cruising now. All right, guys, I want you to look up here for just a second and realize something. There's, there are only four graduates in this group. It's almost like, where's Waldo? Um, but there's only four, which means there was, there's family that surrounds every single one of these graduates. And so these graduates get to a place where they've, uh, they've finished this particular chapter of their life. However, it is just a chapter. That book is not complete. And they didn't get through all the chapters so far without the help of those that are standing around them. And that's a good thing. Because God has set up family in a lot of ways to come and support and, and to lead and disciple. And so I'm thankful for not just the graduates that are up front, but also the families that are up front. And then the church family that surrounds them. So what I'd like us to do is surround these graduates and pray for them as a church family and for these families that in some ways will be doing the kiss and cry when they drop their child off at college here shortly. So, um, so church family, would you surround them? And then we will close in prayer in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service.